I'm Kara Infante, and this is Bookish Flights. In each episode, I chat with one bookish guest as we take some time to sample and savor the pairing recommendations from their bookish flight. We hope to give you suggestions to cultivate your TBR list and nurture your leisure time through books. In today's episode, I am chatting with William Kent Kruger. William was raised in the Cascade Mountains of Oregon and briefly attended Stanford University before being kicked out for radical activities. After that, he logged timber, worked construction, tried his hand at freelance journalism, and eventually ended up researching child development at the University of Minnesota. He has been married for nearly 50 years to a marvelous woman who is a retired attorney. He makes his home in St. Paul, Minnesota, a city he dearly loves. William writes a mystery series set in the Northwoods of Minnesota. His protagonist is Cork O'Connor, the former sheriff of Tamarack County and a man of mixed heritage, part Irish and part Ojibwe. His work has received a number of awards, including the Minnesota Book Award, the Loft McKnight Fiction Award, the Anthony Award, the Barry Award, the Dillis Award, and the Friends of American Writers Prize. His 11 novels were all New York Times bestsellers. Ordinary Grace, his standalone novel published in 2013, received the Edgar Award, given by the Mystery Writers of America in recognition for the best novel published in that year. The companion novel, This Tenderland, was published in September 2019 and spent six months on the New York Times bestseller list. William is about to release his next novel, the River We Remember on September 5th. Welcome to the show, Kent. Pleasure to be with you, Kara. Thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. And I'm saying tonight because normally I record in the morning, but here we are in the evening. <laughs> so I appreciate it. Well, let's start with talking a little bit about who you are as a writer. And did you always know you were going to be a writer? Oh, there was never anything else I ever wanted to be but okay. a writer. Yeah, I'm... I knew that from the get-go. Um, and, you know, in large measure, probably, Cara, it's because I had, I was fortunate, I hope like everybody who is listening, uh, to have parents who read to me when I was a kid. Uh, as a child, I never went down for a nap. I never went to bed at night without a story being read to me. And so, whatever reason, I... I grew up wanting to be one of the storytellers. So I have always written. Yeah. Oh, I absolutely love that because I have small children right now. And that is what we try to do. We read in the morning, we read for nap, we read in the evening. And I'm just hoping it'll inspire them down the road to be at least readers in my mind. <laughs> yeah. Well, you never know what you're going to produce. You may you may be talking to the next Hemingway or the next uh, Harper Lee. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. And my oldest son, he stays up late now with his nightlight to read. And we just kind of let it roll. I'm Good. like, yeah, enjoy it, buddy. Sounds like you're doing it all right. <laughs> I'm I'm trying really hard. Um, so you said you wanted to be a storyteller. Did you start off being a verbal storyteller before or have you always written it down? Well, I probably told my share of lies <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid. I really what I recall as a kid uh, was, you know, if the truth was just too simple, hmm, I would elaborate a great deal on that. <laughs> But for the most part, I've always written down my stories. Okay. All right. So I know based off your intro, you had some other jobs. When did you start getting serious about a career in writing? Well, you know, it's the dream of every storyteller, every writer yeah. uh, to be able someday to make their living at what they do. 
that didn't happen for me actually until quite late in my life. I didn't publish my first novel, uh, Iron Lake, which is the first of my Cork O'Connor series until I was 48 years old. Okay. Uh, but I was writing before that. I won some awards for my short stories. Um, always had my hand uh, in, in the, you know, in the pot, doing whatever I could. But uh, in 1998, with the publication of Iron Lake, I was able to finally step away from the workaday world and become a writer with a capital W. I love that. Congratulations. It sounds like so over the years you've been honing your craft, even though it wasn't your primary job at that time. Yeah, um, I was, I've always been very disciplined in my approach, Cara. Uh, for the last 40 years, I've um, arisen at six o'clock every morning, seven days a week, and spent the first two to three hours writing. So I served a very long apprenticeship. But, you know, when I look back at all of those years when I, before I had published my novel, you know, I've never thought of them as wasted time because every day I was getting up and the first thing I did in the morning was what I loved to do most, you know, yeah. writing. Yeah. It sounds like you really set the tone for your day then by doing that as well. Oh, absolutely. Writing for me has become a way to center myself and uh, create the energy that that I need to go out into the world and give to it, you know, what writers these days are required to give to it. Yeah. So would that be, I guess, if there's some aspiring writers listening in today, would that be advice you would give them as kind of set a routine like you have you have had through the years? Oh, absolutely. I, I, if you're an artist, I don't care what your medium is. I think you need to approach it in a disciplined way if you're going to accomplish anything. So that's one of the first pieces of advice uh, I give an aspiring writer who asks me for advice. Um, write every day, write every single day. It keeps you connected to the energy of the work and it's confirmation for you and for those around you who love you of the importance of this endeavor in your life. Yeah. Wow. That's really wonderful advice. Knowing what you know now, if you could go back to your young writer self, is there something you would advice you would have given yourself then? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't worry so much about uh, the future. It, you know, you're on a journey. The journey is going to take you down the path you were always meant to go down. So just relax and enjoy the trip. Yeah. I think those are good reminders, even if you're not a writer, right? Like I sometimes have to remind myself, like I can't change yesterday and I can't, you know, do anything about tomorrow, but I just have to be in today. <laughs> and that's all I can be that's in. <laughs> great advice uh, for so many of us and really in so many ways. Absolutely. Um, okay. And then I know from having read a lot of your books, you do such a great job about describing nature and give it a strong sense of place like i feel like you really get the sense of especially the midwest um having grown up here myself um but have you visited a lot of these places that you write about or where do you get the ideas for that well i'm one of those writers who believes as much as possible that you ought to experience whatever you're going to write about i write mysteries so i draw the line at murder but uh, pretty much everything else i write about i have done my best to experience or to talk to people who are well-versed in whatever it is I need to know. But for all of my novels, uh, wherever they're set, I've been there. Um, yeah. I do my due diligence um, because 
you know, I, I know there are writers who uh, just look at Google Maps or, you know, <laughs> pictures and they, they create a, a landscape from that. I just don't understand how they can do that. Yeah. I, wrote prof I write profoundly out of a sense of place and I'm a very sensual writer. So uh, if I'm going to write a story in the North Country in one of my Cork O'Connor novels, I make sure I'm up in the North Country in the season in which that story is going to be set. Okay. So I know what, uh, you know, what are the colors of that season? What are the smells in the air? What are people wearing? What are people talking about? Yeah. I do the same for my standalones, which are all set in Southern Minnesota, the Midwest setting uh, for me. Um, so for example, for this tender land, um, which spent six months on the New York Times yeah. bestseller. Congratulations. <laughs> and it's set, uh, it's set in Southern Minnesota. I um, it's, it's the story of some orphans who end up uh, in a canoe with the idea that they're going to canoe all the way down the Mississippi River to uh, St. Louis. So I canoed the rivers that the kids canoe. Wow. Yeah, story. I visited every everywhere that I had set a scene. I visited that place so that I could use the actual elements of this of that particular place so that anybody who knows the place i'm was writing about could go oh my god that's right i know that rock where those two kids kissed yeah. i know you know all of that yeah so do you have the idea for your story and then you travel to this place or could it be in the other direction as well like maybe you've traveled there and then you're getting an idea for the story it works both ways okay typically if i know um, what I'm going to need to know in terms of where the scenes are going to take place, where the events are going to, to occur. I, I try to be up there before I actually do the writing, but then often I'll revisit to make sure that I've got it right. Yeah. So it, you know, it goes back, it goes both ways. Okay. All right. And then about how long is this writing process for you? Like from idea to completing the novel? Depends on the kind of story I'm going to write. I pretty much am contractually obligated to deliver a, a novel every year in my corporate okay. economy. That's pretty much commercial speed in New York City, which I have no difficulty uh, doing because, you know, when I'm writing a Cork O'Connor story, I'm not reinventing the wheel. Yeah. I already have established characters and uh, a setting and elements that, that readers are familiar with and expect in the story. Yeah. So about a year for each of those. But for my standalones, each of those has taken about three years. But I've always worked on them while I'm working on the Cork O'Connor novels. Okay. Never work on them in the same day. But, <laughs> I imagine uh, that would be a challenge. Yeah, well, there, you know, there are natural stopping places when I create a manuscript for my series. Um, so when I finish the first draft, I'll try to set it aside so that when I come back to the first round of revisions, it's with a fresh eye. Okay. And while it's set aside, I would work on a standalone. Then the manuscript for the Cork novel would go to my agent. She would have it for several weeks and I would work on the standalone. Then the Cork manuscript would go to my editor at Simon & Schuster. And while he had it, I would work on a standalone. So in okay. that way, um, I was able to write a couple of Cork O'Connor novels between all of my um, standalones. Yeah. And that sounds like you said those natural breaks really help you kind of shift gears between the two. Indeed they do. They're two different kinds. You know, they come from two different places. Uh, honestly, Kara, when I write uh, 
a mystery. A mystery is an intellectual construct. It's a puzzle that you create in your brain and you're working very hard to make sure all of the pieces fit very neatly together. Okay. My standalones are different kinds of stories. They don't come from my head, they come from my heart. Yeah. And so I have always uh, sought a, a creative process that will allow the, the reader to feel like I am telling you a story directly from my heart. So for the Cork O'Connors, um, I think the story's through as completely as I can before I ever put my fingers to the keyboard. For my standalones, I know a few salient elements of each of the stories, but I launch into it then and let the story reveal itself to me as I'm writing it. And uh, that's a very dynamic <laughs> process, but it's one that I would never follow for a Cork O'Connor novel. Yeah. And I will say as the reader, you know, this Tenderland, Ordinary Grace, those all hit me. They hit me very deeply too, right in the themes that you've covered and the emotional and the character development, right? And the investment. Um, I could feel somewhat of what you're talking about as I read those too. Well, and you're a Midwest uh, kid. Yep. Uh, and uh, both of those, all of those novels, in addition to The River We Remember, are very Midwest settings. And so, um, I'm a firm believer that once the Midwest sets a hook in your heart, you know, it always pulls you back here. Um, you can never truly escape it. It's it's always there in your thinking and your sensibilities. Yeah. Yeah. When I think about, you know, books of the Midwest and sometimes I've, you know, with book flights I've created on the show, your books immediately come to mind if I'm like setting in the Midwest, William Kent Kruger, that's where we're going. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm glad yeah. to hear that. Absolutely. So, well, can you tell the listeners about a little bit, you know, a brief description about your newest uh, novel that's coming out, The River We Remember? Sure. It's uh, set in uh, the summer of 1958 in a small town um, in a county in southern Minnesota I call Black Earth County. Okay. It opens on Memorial Day, 1958, when the county's leading citizen, a man named Jimmy Quinn, is found floating in the Alabaster River, nearly naked and dead from a shotgun blast. This really is um, a quintessential mystery because the question at the heart of it is, who killed Jimmy Quinn and why? But you know, Kara, it's about a whole lot more. Um, my father at 18 years of age graduated from high school, enlisted in the service and marched off to fight in World War II okay. in Europe. He was just a kid. He came back several years later, a man deeply wounded in body and spirit by what he had experienced in the war. I realized years later that he was suffering from PTSD, what back then they would have called shell shock yeah. or battle fatigue. Um, and he would, you know, when I was a kid, I pestered my father for stories about fighting the Germans, and he absolutely refused to talk about that experience. And he was so like the friends of my, uh, the fathers of my friends men who had gone off to fight in World War II or the Korean boy, uh, Korean War. And these were all just boys, you know, the, yeah. some of them weren't even old enough to shave. And they came back men wounded by the, the, the horrors that they had seen and the horrors that they had been a part of. And I've wondered all my life, how did anybody manage to heal from yeah. that kind of wounding? So that's really what the river we remember is about. Yeah. Oh, well, that's beautiful. And I, our episode is actually releasing the day after your book is releasing. So, but I'm hoping the listeners will, you know, get to pick it up shortly after oh, our good. episode. So <laughs> I hope this will encourage them. Absolutely. Um, you know, you, as you're saying that I, 
I started my life as a physical therapist, as a working person, let's say this. Um, and my husband is actually in the military. So we have moved a lot, which is why I am not working in a PT clinic any longer. But your story struck me because I've met many veterans from World War II that I had seen as patients in my career as a physical therapist. And I, I think of one man in particular that was in the Battle of the Bulge and just, I could feel his emotions still at 92 when I was seeing him um, relating yeah, that, to that. My father was at the Battle of the Bulge, uh, was badly wounded there. And uh, that ended the war, his participation in the war. But he spent many, many, many months rehabilitating in an army hospital after that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually where physical therapy started, was after World oh, War really? II as well. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That was that's how we came to be was as okay. rehab professionals. So <laughs> as a little aside there. Um, but yeah, I, I'm... You know, I've read your book. I, I got the gift of getting to read it already, and I loved it. And so I can't wait for our listeners to get it, too. Oh, great. Thank so, you. Well, let's switch gears a little bit, and let's talk about who you are as a reader. So what genres do you like? Yeah, I'm a, my interest as a reader is pretty broad. Because I write a great deal in the mystery genre, I read a lot of mysteries. Okay. For a variety of reasons. I love mysteries, first of all. I have lots of friends who are writers, and I want to make sure that uh, when I see them next, I can say, hey, great, great last book, as opposed to, hmm, I heard that last book you wrote was pretty good, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I want to keep up with who are the new voices in the genre. So I read a lot of mysteries. Uh, but outside the mystery genre, I have uh, a lot of favorite authors and a lot of different styles and kinds of books that appeal to me my favorite can i say my favorite writer these days absolutely my favorite author these days is a guy named frederick bachman um scandinavian author uh listeners may know him as the author of a man called ove yeah um, yeah he's also written the the bear town uh trilogy i i think actually now there are four of them okay um just people all wonderful books he's such um He's such a compassionate writer with such a feel for what it is to be human. I love his work. Yeah. So whenever Frederick Bachman has a new book out, I'm sure to grab it up. We actually share an editor. We have the same editor, but uh, wow. I, have, I have yet to meet Frederick Bachman. That's on my to-do list. Okay. I was going to ask you that. <laughs> yeah. That would be wonderful. Yeah. His books are fantastic too. We actually, in, you know, we're at 40 episodes now. We have not had a Frederick Bachman yet in the book flight, but We'll have to change that. I think he could have his own episode, probably. <laughs> I'm sure he could. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Well, and then how in your busyness do you find time to read? I have to be very disciplined in that as well. Okay. Um, I don't read at night because I'm, you know, I can read for about uh, a page or two and I just fall asleep. Yep. It takes me forever to finish a book that way. Uh, so I, I typically will read in the afternoon. I try to clear at least an hour away every afternoon uh, to read. And in the same way that I write, it, it keeps me connected to the story. Every once in a while, if I'm really engaged, I might go for two hours. Yeah. But I try to read every single day. Yeah. That's what I try to encourage in my son as well. Like, let, let's just start with 15 minutes. In my mind, I'm hoping like you'll get hooked and you'll want to read longer. But let's just, you know, 15 minutes for a seven-year-old is perfect <laughs> amount oh, of time. <laughs> You can do a lot of damage in 15 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, well, and I know you've been so gracious to prepare a book flight for us today. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how those books pair together? 
Sure. Uh, I'm going to be talking about books that center on coming of age. Uh, what, you know, if you were taking a literature class would be called Bildungsroman, the <laughs> of age stories. Okay. Uh, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for coming of age stories. And, uh, and I've written a few of them myself. So I thought we would talk about those today. Um, the first book that I would recommend as a coming of age story to everybody is the classic Huckleberry Finn. Love it. Yeah, you know, Hemingway said, uh, it's the best book we have. All American writing comes from that. There was nothing before it. Uh, that's probably hyperbole, but uh, <laughs> it, it captures the importance of that novel. I uh, had that novel read to me. Um, actually, I had Huck, uh, uh, Tom Sawyer read to me in the fifth grade okay. and, and just loved it, just loved it because it was about a kid like me having, you know, these great adventures on the Mississippi River. And so after that, of course, I had to read Huckleberry Finn, which I loved even more. Um, I, and I love Huckleberry Finn not only because it's a story of a kid uh, who's beginning to understand the world in a much broader way than uh, than the small town in Missouri where he grew up had allowed him. Um, he begins to see the question of um, slavery and yeah. mistreatment of other human beings in a different light. Um, so the the his journey down the Mississippi River isn't just a you know an adventure. He learns a great deal about what it is to be a human being on that journey. And yeah. uh, I just so love the I love the the poignancy of the journey, but I also I also love the humor that Twain is able to put into this in pretty much every book he wrote. Yeah, yeah, and exactly what I, you're right. Like the fitting in of the coming of age is him becoming a human, right, an adult human, and what he's learning about slavery. You know, that's exactly. And Jim, you know, plays an important the the runaway slave Jim yeah. plays such an important part in mentoring him opening his eyes to these things you know he begins to see jim as a human being yeah yeah and i i try to tell my kids that right we could all learn from one another right we just have to kind of keep that door open and even if we might be disagreeing in that moment we just keep open to learning from each other and you know I try to instill that in them <laughs> yeah you know although i'm talking about coming of age stories we never stop coming of age we never stop <laughs> We're always learning <laughs> those lessons, right? And what it is to be human. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, and then what's the second book of the pairing today? The second book is actually a novella. Okay. And most most people are going to be familiar with the movie that was made from this novella. It's a novella written by Stephen King called The Body. Okay. And the movie that was made from it is called Stand By Me a oh, classic yeah. movie okay many 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 people know the movie stand by me not many of them know the novella uh that was the basis for the movie yeah. and I, I that's me i didn't know that there you go there you go <laughs> i uh i first read the body probably 10 years ago maybe when i discovered that oh wait a minute there's a novella behind this this uh, movie and it, for me, it was one of the best evocations of what it is to be a 12-year-old boy. Okay. Uh, you know, for, for those of you who have not seen the movie nor read the novella, it's a group of boys uh, in a summer just before they have to go back to school. They're all 12 years old, 
and they're going to find a body, the body of a boy who's been killed on the railroad tracks. And it's that camaraderie that they share as they head down the railroad tracks to find this body, the things they say to each other, the things that they're concerned about, um, what's on the horizon for those of the, the boys who are a little more prescient and uh, yeah. and already a little wiser than the others. It's just, it's such a beautifully told story. And it's just, it's so nailed what it is to be a 12 year old boy. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I don't know that I've ever seen the movie either. So I'm like, man, I have to have to go you check this to out. This you need to see this movie. It's a uh, Rob Reiner directed. Um, let's see. Um, um, River Phoenix okay. in a very early role for River Phoenix. Also for uh, oh, the guy who played in the start, the boy who played in the Star Trek series. I can't remember his name now. Senior moment, but uh, I also am terrible with pop culture unless it's related <laughs> to books and reading. I am <laughs> not your person. <laughs> no, you'll you when you uh, when you see the movie, you'll know every actor in that movie. Okay, they all went in. They all went on to do great things. Okay. All right. And then for you, do you, for what, like reading and then watching the movie, do you have, are you a purist in that? Like you like to try to read the book before you watch the movie? I know some people feel very strongly about this. That's my preference. Okay. Um, in this case, it was the other way around, which sure. is just because in, in all honesty, it was one of the best translations from print to screen that I have ever seen. But typically, yes, I like to read the book and then be very disappointed in the I, movie. I have a friend that she has a podcast called Off Script, okay. and they compare books and movies. And she's a screenwriter by trade, and th they have this theory that if you whatever medium you read or watch first is what you're going to think is the best form. And you know, so if you watch the movie first, you might actually enjoy the movie more than the book. But if you definitely read the book first, you're more than likely going to have enjoyed the book more than the movie. <laughs> you know, I don't know that that's necessarily true for yeah. me. One of the things about uh, the book is I just enjoy the, the beauty of the writing itself, true. which doesn't necessarily, in fact, very, very seldom translates to the screen. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I guess I would quibble with that. Yeah. Yeah. I think the depth that you get from the book. Right. And I just think they just maybe don't have the time or the capacity to do that in film. That well, film is, you know, you have to be such film is shorthand yeah. for the sport. And so everything has to be done very quickly. But you read a book and the characters are more richly and deeply drawn. Yeah. Uh, the landscapes more beautifully, I think more beautifully evoked the complexities of relationships, much more interesting, generally speaking. Yeah. Yeah, I always think too of like the tougher scenes that in my when I'm reading the book, my mind not per, might not portray it as like that gory or that as emotional. But if I'm seeing it on the screen, it just hits me so much differently because it's it's almost being portrayed for you where when I'm reading, it's my mind doing that. Exactly. Yeah. And maybe a self-protective mechanism. I don't know when I'm reading. <laughs> it doesn't push me to the edge. Um Okay, well, that was wonderful. I kind of got us sidetracked a little bit. Did you want to add anything else about the body? No, that's fine. I think okay. we've covered it pretty well. Okay, and then what's the third book of the pairing? Oh, it's the most classic coming-of-age novel ever written um, in the American canon, and that's To Kill a Mockingbird, of yes. course. Of yeah. course. <laughs> I couldn't do a coming-of-age without talking about To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. Not only is it a classic coming-of-age story, 
it is um, a marvelous story on so many levels. But the character of uh, Scout and her brother Jem are two of the most memorable uh, kids in all of literature. Yeah. Um, and the what they experience um, as a result of the rape or the um, the mm, ha <laughs> <laughs> the accusation yeah. of rape that sets everything in motion. Tom Robinson's arrest, Atticus Finch being chosen to defend him, and then the kids watching all of the dynamics in this small town that uh, come about as a result of that. And they're forced to look at their town in a different way and to look at their father in a very different way. And then in the end, they see themselves in a different way as well. It's just a beautiful story. Yeah. Yeah. We reread this last year for the book club that I'm in and I hadn't read it since high school, but I remember more identifying with the children in high school. And then when I reread this for book club this past year, I really identified with Atticus Finch and probably now because I'm a parent, right? It, like, and just, yeah. I, I've really enjoyed revisiting these classics that I read, you know, for high school or school or whatever it was right back then, because I identify so much differently now. And I probably understand the story even more than I did at, you know, 16, 17, when I initially read it. So that makes great sense. Um, yeah. I mean, we've all now come of age. So. Yeah. But we're still doing it, right? <laughs> we do. And some of us are coming of a very old age. Uh, <laughs> and the older we get, the, the I, th I hope the wiser we become and, uh, and, and the broader our understanding of what it is to be human. Absolutely. I can't help but thinking as we're talking about these coming of age stories of this Tenderland as well. I feel like you have a lot of themes of coming of age in that novel as well. Yeah, my two earlier standalones, Ordinary Grace and This Tenderland, uh, both are very much in the Bildungsroman uh, <laughs> category. Uh, Ordinary Grace, you know, the story of a Methodist minister's family and the death of a beloved child. and. Uh, the two boys in that who have to come to accept what what that does to the family and then this land a whole uh, group of orphans uh, forming a family together and setting off to canoe down to st louis yeah and you have the themes of camaraderie in that as well absolutely it's actually in this tender land it's it's more the theme of family because the, the poor vagabonds, the kids in that create a family as a result of their being together on the river and yeah. their need to depend on each other, and trust each other and protect each other. I wanted to explore the theme of family in that one. How is family created? Is it all about bloodlines or are there more dynamic elements involved in the creation of family? Uh, so that's one of the themes, you know, the spiritual journey runs through that one as well. Coming of age runs through that one. Yeah. Yeah. So listeners, those would be excellent dessert pairings. If you have not read those novels yet, those would be excellent dessert pairings for our flight today. Um, you know, I didn't ask you back when we were talking about you as a writer, but do you draw from any of your life experiences within your writing? My standalones for sure. Ordinary Grace, the family at the heart of Ordinary Grace is really based on my own family. Okay. Uh, town of New Bremen where the events take place is so like the small Midwestern towns where I spent my adolescence. A uh, number of the characters in that 
book and in uh, the characters in this tender land are drawn either from my family members or from from uh, people that I have known in my life. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, I apologize that I forgot that in the beginning. I was like, but this is the perfect time to put that in, I think. <laughs> okay. Well, how I like to close our show actually is with what I call our bonus pairings. And these are just a speed round of questions. So you can answer these pretty quick. Are you a rereader? Oh, yes. But uh, with, uh, with I'm a judicious rereader. Okay. There are maybe four or five books that I will reread every two or three years. Okay. Can you tell us what one of those are? Well, To Kill a Mockingbird, for sure. Okay. Great Gatsby, The Old Man in the Sea, mm -hmm. and The Catcher in the Rye. Okay. I love it. And I think that the classics really give us the ability to go back and reread, right? There's so much depth to those stories. and Yeah, you know, there are so many novels, really fine novels out there that you feel overwhelmed. Yeah. And I think periodically you have to come back and just touch base with those that first helped you fall in love with what a great story can do. Yeah. I actually just was walking around yesterday and, um, and we're, we're staying at my in-laws right now and there was a little free library and I had pretty much twisted my son's arm recently. Like we need to read the boxcar children. I want to read this book with you. <laughs> and, um, and with the ones that they happen to have at the library, I did not read it as a kid, but it's like the great adventure. It's like a series within the boxcar children. And so I'm walking around and I'm, you know, having some nice leisure time to myself, which was beautiful, right? The quiet. And, um, I stopped by this book house and they had book one, of the boxcar children and i was like just the excitement i felt and i'm like oh i have to get this for my son because i knew he was going to be so excited because now he actually really enjoys the boxcar children that's what he asked for when we go to the library um and so i just it brought back so many memories and i think kind of what you're saying about revisiting these books there was so much nostalgia mm -hmm. to when i picked up this book book one and i just wanted to share it with my son of like i can't wait to get home and give it to him and we can start so <laughs> well that's a great story yeah I, I felt really lucky yesterday when we when i found that and so do you always read hard copy books or do you listen to audiobooks at all i'm a firm believer in print okay i understand the the value of ebooks they are they're easy in so many ways. Yeah. My take is you you can fall in love with a story uh, as an ebook, but you have a love affair with a print book. I mean, you have there's that beautiful face of the cover. There's the way the pages whisper to you. There's that fragrance that comes up from the pages themselves. Yeah, you have a love affair with a real book. So I'm a reader of yeah. real books. I love that because I feel the same way when I'm reading ebooks. I've done it now out of necessity, just with various life situations, right? And I, even though it'll tell me like how far I am in the book, there's something about me holding the heft of the book and knowing like, oh, I'm like two thirds into this book or halfway through, I don't know. And then even though I could literally see on the bottom of the screen, I'm 50% of the way through, like it just does not register <laughs> somehow. Okay, and then what is one book you have read that has changed your life? Oh. Well, you have me flummoxed here. Okay. One that I've read that has changed my life. You know, I'll tell you one book that changed my life as a writer. 
And that was uh, when I read Cormac McCarthy's, uh, the first book I read by Cormac McCarthy, All the Pretty Horses. Okay. I was just blown away with what Cormac McCarthy was able to do with our language. Um, I would never try to write a Cormac McCarthy novel, but um, as a result of what I saw him do, I really try to stretch myself whenever I'm writing my own prose. Yeah, that's beautiful. All right, last question here. What are you reading next? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to read next. My big read next is going to be uh, Moby Dick. Okay. It's a novel that I have tried many times to read and never quite made it through. But my next standalone project is going to be a retelling of Moby Dick um, set uh, on land. I and love so that. <laughs> I need to read Moby Dick to make sure I'm... Uh, I'm right there in the ballpark. Yeah. And that's a pretty lengthy novel as well, correct? It's enormous. Okay. I was like, I think I remember seeing it's a very large book. <laughs> yeah, that. Okay. Well, good luck with that. And I can't wait to well, see you. what comes from this project. That's really exciting. Thanks for sharing that with us. That's okay. I'm pretty excited to uh, see what happens too. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. I really appreciate the time that you've given me. Uh, I've had a wonderful time. Thanks for the invitation. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode today with William Kent Kruger and his book flight of coming of age novels. We'd love to hear what other books you would pair with this book flight at bookishflights.com. That is also where you can find more information on today's flight and any other books that we talked about today. I want to inspire a community of readers. So whenever you share a post about what you are reading or what you are picking up next, especially if you have heard about the book on the show, please tag us. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Bookish Flights. This is a brand new show. So if you enjoyed it, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give the show a review. Your review not only helps me, but it also helps the show reach others. Make sure you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to make sure that you will not miss an episode. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. As Emma Thompson said, I think books are like people in the sense that they'll turn up in your life when you most need them. Cheers to you, dear readers. Until next time.